Tyler. I'm Danny. And this is episode... 55. Of Fried Squirms. Yeah, and we're staying alive. Yeah. I also can't drive 55. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's a good one. Got uh, me. So we're here to talk about more horror movies with you guys. This week being Scanners. Oh, man. It's a fun way to introduce our audience to a big name as well, which, you know, we'll mention in the next section, but I'm happy we're doing it. Here's the thing. Like, I almost feel like the beginning of this, since we hit episode 50, we counted that as our big, like, kind of year milestone. Yeah. And we've already started off by trying to correct things a little bit. We hadn't done classic Universal Monster, so we started off with... Creature from the Black Lagoon. Exactly. We wanted to make sure that we still got some of our crazy international shit out there. So we did... We just did I Saw the Devil recently, and prior to that, we wanted to do another one we had mentioned a lot on the show with Ravenous. Right. And this is just us kind of righting another wrong with the fact that we haven't mentioned David Cronenberg yet. No, and he has a really interesting way of introducing an element of horror that not a lot of people tackle. But before we get there, I think we both mentioned having little news bits. Yeah, just little nuggets, I guess, throughout the week we pick up on. You go ahead and go first. Yeah, I only have one news, which is, for the most part, you know, I've been editing and trying to keep track of some interesting notes with this film. But I did pick up on a little nugget that starting in March, Rob Zombie is supposed to be filming the sequel to Devil's Rejects. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so awesome. Hopefully he doesn't... Fu- I mean, I don't think he's going to fuck it up. Like I said, I love all of his stuff, yeah. except for the Haunted World of El- Super I mean, there are certain things that, you know, it's not the best work, but it's not no, no, by any yeah, stretch the worst thing, shit like, you're going to see. Like his Halloween stuff. Not the worst movies. Not the best either. Probably not going to go out of my way to watch him again. Yeah, but you know what you're going to get out of it, you know, roughly. So, yeah, that's the one bit of news I didn't want to share, because, you know, we pumped up Rob Zombie for a long time, and we're going to be doing it as long as he keeps making films. My little bit of news is kind of fun. I'll put a link to an article up on our Facebook so you can go check it out for yourself. But it should be kind of easy to find as well. Being a giant fan of H.P. Lovecraft, something that popped around this week, somebody realized that the meter to the H.P. Lovecraft poem Nemesis and the meter to Billy Joel's song Piano Man almost line up. That's you have pretty to make like a, a couple slight changes and like drop a couple lines of Nemesis, but otherwise it lines up. Wow! So there has uh, suddenly been a spate of videos of people covering Piano Man, except substituting in the words for H.P. Lovecraft's Nemesis. That's really dope. Um, the article I looked at has three videos linked. I think there's more. I only watched two of them, one doing a version on guitar and somebody else actually hamming it up on piano. That's pretty awesome. And it's pretty great if you like H.P. Lovecraft. And or uh, Billy Joel. And or Billy Joel. It's a good way to sort of take in some of the tunes. That's pretty awesome. Uh, one of them, I, I think it's pretty easily found if you like search for like a H.P. Joelcraft. <laughs> Shit, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Fuck uh, yeah. But I was vastly entertained by that. Actually, I mean, I'll admit, I zoned out part of Scanners on my second watch just to watch that. I was like, it happens. I'm not going to stop watching the movie, but I am going to watch this. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, that's really cool. That's some interesting uh, piece of mashing up. Or just even fans, right? Yeah, I think that's all I have for this week, though. That's really cool. Outside of... 
I did mention really briefly to you, I introduced my brother-in-law, Jeff. I introduced him to what our first... Jeff? Yeah, what's up, Jeff? Well, our first episode, we watched uh, Reanimator last night, so I introduced him to Reanimator, and he enjoyed it. Such a good movie. Yeah, it's like, man, I just bought a copy of it because I have a copy in South Carolina somewhere, but anyway, it's like, I got it for eight bucks, it, it was really dope, and... Yeah, man, we had a good time. I ran into a former work buddy of ours at work this week. He was popping through and getting some groceries, and he had a nice new reanimator patch on Ooh. his jacket. It was pretty dope. Very nice. But we're not here to talk about reanimator. I know. We did that for episode one. We're here to talk about scanners. Scanners, yes. Uh, I'm dude. pretty excited for this one for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, Likewise. So let's get into this. Let's start off with the guts and bolts. Guts and bolts. Guts and bolts. Yes, we are here with the Guts and Bolts, and this is where we talk about who all went into this movie in their various ways and various companies to try to sell you on the fact that all these movies are made up of people that you probably love. You would be very surprised on a lot of these projects that the people behind the scenes have worked on. So yeah, that's why I like sharing that information in this section. And we also try to keep spoiler-free in this section. Right. We do give synopsis, and you're right, we give spoiler-free information, but that's what the next section's for. Now, I will say that this movie held two big surprises for me. One of them we'll get to at the very beginning of the How Did That Make You Squeal, because it's very, very important to how I viewed this movie. Okay. But the other one had something to do with the credits. Now, we'll do a synopsis first, but then we're going to go vastly out of order of what we normally do, <laughs> okay, okay, no just problem. to bring up this huge realization that I had when I saw the credits in this movie. Yeah. But first, a synopsis of the movie. I think this is a tale of a struggle between two companies who have interest in telepathy and telekinesis, but focuses on two main gentlemen. I don't know, man. I mean, it, in the end, it does boil down to being between two companies, technically. Yeah. But... It's, most of, it's, the, char- it's most of the characters don't even know that till way later in the movie. Yeah. So it's more of just a struggle between two extremely deadly psychics. Yeah, in that regard. That are set upon each other and are going through a world of corporate espionage and shady practices. <laughs> oh, yeah. To the point where it's kind of a thriller. The movie setup is kind of like a thriller. It is. Though I would very much count this as a horror movie. Oh, yeah. It has a really nice twist to a lot of different elements. Okay, like I said, the big realization I had during the credits, because it fucking jumped out at me, I was like, oh my god, I fucking know that name really, really well. Howard Shore did the goddamn music for this movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a huge name. What the actual fuck? I had no idea. Like, I always just think Cronenberg when I think this movie. He's done quite a few movies with Cronenberg and some other huge directors and huge films. You know, it's unbelievable. Right. If you are out there and you hear the name Howard Shore and you're like, that sounds familiar, and you start scratching your head like, why does that sound familiar? Well, it's probably because you're one of the all of the people in the world (laughs) that have seen the Lord of the Rings movies, which he did the fucking scores for. And The Hobbit. So he's done the trilogies for both of those. If you haven't seen those, for whatever odd reasons, right? (laughs) If you're familiar with Tom Hanks, he scored the film Big from 1988. You might have seen a little film called The Silence of the Lambs. He helped score the soundtrack for that. If you're familiar with maybe Robin Williams, eh, just maybe by chance you've seen Mrs. Doubtfire. You might have listened to some of his work in another Tom Hanks film, Philadelphia. Or That Thing You Do. The Thing You Do, Ed Wood. Uh, I want to point out that there was this weird period of time. I would have been, I guess, in my early teens 
Uh, when did that thing you do come out? I can't quite remember. Uh, I would think like maybe late nineties. Yeah. So I would have been in like I probably ninety nine probably. <laughs> considering. Yeah. yeah. No shit. Um, oh wow. It was a while after it had come to video already. It wasn't like right when it came okay, to so video. Okay, so would have been early 2000s So I maybe. probably would have been, yeah, in my early teens. And my little brother really latched on to that movie for it's some reason. It's pretty decent. I mean, I like the movie a lot, but he really latched on to it for some reason. And I have subsequently seen that thing you do probably over 80 times. I wouldn't say I've seen it quite that many times, but I've probably seen it in the range somewhere in the teens, like... Him and my dad would both just really latch on to a movie really hardcore. And it didn't happen too many times, but whenever it did, it was both of them that it would both of them would latch onto it. And it would be like the only thing that would fucking play in the house for like the next four months. I can relate to that. They did that with that thing you do. They did that with Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, I think a lot of people did with that film, to be honest. That was on fucking repeat at our house for a long time. I'm pretty sure those two motherfuckers can both still quote, quote it. it. Yeah, and Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. That's a good film, but <laughs> that's a interesting one to latch onto. You know what I mean? I mean, I've done that with my brother. We've done that with Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. That See, was I like mean, our I, go-to. I've done man. that with movies too, but it was always weird because it was always both of them together, just like, yeah. and it was the only thing that play in the house. Like, oh oh shit! So yeah, that thing you do. Howard Shore, I'm really familiar with his score on that. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Like I said, it's a pretty decent film. Once again, it's got Tom Hanks in it, you know? Uh, oh, and I suppose we probably mentioned him one other time. Yes, we have. I was going to mention him. We've mentioned him on a three-hour episode of The Cell. <laughs> that episode. <laughs> right? So he scored the soundtrack to The Cell. I was looking through some of his other credits. We mentioned Seven on our I Saw the Devil episode. <laughs> for some reasons. <laughs> you know, we talked about Kevin Smith. He scored the soundtrack to Dogma, uh, Gangs of New York, The Aviator. He was actually one of the original composers to the music on Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think he took a break from doing a television, started scoring films. Then he got called back a little bit to do other work on TV. And I mean, this guy's just a huge hitter in music composition. So you've probably heard or you know seen him somewhere. Okay, so now that was really out of order, but that jumped out at me because I had no idea he was no, involved in this movie. No, that's a huge credit, man. Because as I pointed out, the other big draw to this movie is the fact it's a David Cronenberg movie. And not just that, but oh, this one still isn't super heavy body horror. No, not in comparison. But it gives us a chance to talk about body horror. Yeah, and I think it's probably just like a nice subtle entry into David Cronenberg. We've talked about it a little bit because, like, Dead Alive touches on body horror, especially when the grandma's, like, falling apart. Yeah. Raw kind of touches on body horror. Shit, I'm sure if I look... I mean, Martyrs, if you want to talk about... A little bit, but that's a That's not his main theme, but, I mean, it, it does focus a little bit on that. But, you know, in comparison, David Cronenberg is known for some of the body horror, the extremes that the body goes through, whether it's through infection or it can be just through like a metamorphosis or just, you know, just a change. And it tends to be some sort of inward cause. It's not necessarily body horror if a body gets rearranged because a serial killer slashes into it and rearranges it himself. What is body horror is like your arm suddenly growing a gaping wound and an eyeball looking at you through it. <laughs> exactly. And there are things that ride the line. Like, I'd say the Evil Dead franchise has a lot of 
sort of body horror does. that does involve outside influence, but the amount of outside influence is arguable because it's usually <laughs> like possessions and shit. Yeah. Like I even think of a scene of writing the line would be in the Evil Dead reboot with the tongue. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Like it's physical violence causing the tongue to split, the focus on it still pushes it into the boundaries of sort of body horror. It does. It certainly does. I'll make a real brief entry into that, too. There was a film that I was recommended to watch by... Sometimes he listens, Friedman, but he was telling me about a film called Eat, and I started watching some of it, and it highly focuses on body horror and the regard that it deals with the body. So, yeah, I mean, there's some really cool angles that you can work, you know, in in that aspect of it. (laughs) And, of course, this is a generation now that has probably watched Rick and Morty. So when they create all the Cronenbergs, they call them Cronenbergs <laughs> That's really because good. those mutations are very reminiscent of the shit that this motherfucker does. Oh my gosh. So, you know, we've been talking about Cronenberg. He is a Canadian director. Now, he started off actually as a writer at the University of Toronto, but he kind of changed his focus when he saw a film that some of his classmates had done and it inspired him. He's like, you know, I don't necessarily have to just write. He's like, I actually I can film my ideas. So it kind of got him focused in on that. And then from there, he either wrote and or directed most of all his films. One of his first entries, actually, I think it's like Shivers. Mm-hmm. And then went on to do Rabid. And The Brood was another huge one. Kind of got him some notoriety. This film that we're doing was, you know, which we'll talk about, which was huge cinematic success for him. Of course, The Fly. Oh my gosh, yeah. We talked about Goldblum and Gina Davis. Which I want to get to that one at some point too, because that's one of the body horror movies that actually makes me like... I don't like looking at lots of parts of that movie. Oh yeah, that'll make you squeamish. Yeah. But that's a really good entry. Some of the things that I'm familiar with now, personally, are Videodrome, because we have done James Woods with John Carpenter's Vampires. And it also introduces Debbie Harry from Blondie, you know, and that's a really interesting film. <laughs> Dead Ringers was a huge one. Naked Lunch is another William S. Burroughs kind of adaptation. He filmed with Peter Weller, who is Robocop. Well, I do want to point out that other than just behind the camera, a movie that we've mentioned a few times that we're just going to find the right time to get to is he plays a pretty major part in Nightbreed. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right, which that's a really cool film, too. He's also done work with Christopher Walken in the movie The Dead Zone. Modern moviegoers might have seen some of his films like Existence, Spider, A History of Violence, or maybe Eastern Promises. So he's known for getting some well-known actors to kind of jump outside of maybe their comfort level with some of their film credits. But it's interesting because most of the films are fucking brilliant. So it says a lot about the director in general. He has a fucking tiny cameo in one of my favorite of the terrible Friday the 13th and Jason X. Oh, man, that credit is going to be popped up a lot in this section here in the uh, Guts and Bolts, man. But yeah, David Cronenberg, man, I'm glad we're getting to do him finally. Like I mentioned that he was the writer, so he's the sole writer on this film. Now, our cinematographer is a big hitter, too, for a number of reasons, because he's worked on a lot of films with Cronenberg, most of the ones we had mentioned. He also did some work on the television series Ray Bradbury Theater. 
He was a cinematographer on, I think it's 1980, correct me if I'm wrong, like 87, 88, The Blob. Okay, he did Fright Night Part 2. He's done some work on Tales from the Crypt, the television series. Uh, he was actually a cinematographer on one of my favorite movies growing up, D2. D2, The Mighty, the Mighty Ducks, dude. <laughs> He's a cinematographer on another one of your uh, films that you really enjoy, is Vampire, Vampire in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. dude. Uh, we've actually covered him. And Dumb and Dumber. Scream. He was the cinematographer oh. on Scream. He was also a cinematographer in Robocop 2. So, I mean... Freddy we got fingered. Yeah. I mean, he's got some really dope-ass credits, man. Like some sausage? Yeah. Daddy, would you like some sausage? I love that film, man. I could get into that Mel all day long. most wanted. Yeah. He's done a lot of comedy. He's done a lot of horror, which I thought was really cool because those are two of my favorite genres of film. So, yeah, man. We've seen him in a lot of shit. Our editor in this film is another interesting gentleman. is Ronald Sanders, and he's done a lot of work with Cronenberg as well, like some of the films we already mentioned. Now, he's also won the Genie Awards, which is kind of like the Canadian equivalent of maybe an Oscar, because it usually awards people with like the best film in Canada. So anyhow, the films that he won the awards for, for Eastern Promises, Existence, Crash, and Dead Ringers, which were all Cronenberg films. So that was really neat. He's also done editing work on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents 1987 television series and a really cool animated film, Coraline. Oh, fucking Coraline's dope. Yeah, it's really good, man. I enjoyed the shit out of that one. I love me some Neil Gaiman, so... Yeah, we had mentioned music by Howard Shore. It was produced by Claude Hiru. But there was two executive producers who kind of get opening credit in this film. Those gentlemen, Pierre David and Victor Solnik. Special effects, I want to mention these names real briefly because there's some really cool shit I want to share about these guys later on. But the name I want to mention first is Gary Zeller. He was the supervisor for the special effects makeup and like prosthetics. He was more involved with the pyrotechnics. That was kind of his specialty. Some of the films that he done was kind of cool. He did some work on Dawn of the Dead for some of the, like the head scenes, explosions and shit. The Last Dragon, he had a film called Vigilante. Another guy was Chris Wallace. He was a special makeup. He did some makeup work for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Enemy Mine, and Tales from the Crypt, the television series. Stephen Dupuis, he's got a lot of film credits. I don't want to get too much into it, but he's done some really cool stuff. He was another special makeup artist. Two of the films I'll mention probably he's more known for are the film Cape Fear, the 90s version mm-hmm. with De Niro, which I thought that was really cool. And we mentioned Mrs. Delphire, but Jason X, and I'll mention one more, 300. He's done a lot of oh, really wow. cool makeup. Uh, one more person I want to mention, too, with special effects was Dick Smith. Huge name, being he's known as the godfather of, of making makeup, your own penises. Making Dick Smith? penises. <laughs> no, he is the godfather of special effects for makeup. Okay. Uh, so there's some really cool stuff I'll share, but he probably known for his work on The Exorcist. Done a lot of prosthetic work on that film. He actually helped create some really cool effects for some of these scenes I'll mention later on in the film. And like I said, I'll mention some of his later films, but keep in mind this guy's a huge hitter. Okay, so moving on from our special effects, our production company is our Canadian Film Development Corporation, CFDC in Canada, and Film Plan International. They help with the international distribution too. Distributors, New World Mutual, they helped with the 1981 Canadian theatrical release. Embassy Pictures, they were known as AFCO Embassy Pictures, helped with the 81 USA Theatrical, and Manson International, that was for all non-USA and or Canadian theatrical releases in 1981. I did view the 2014 Criterion Collection Blu-ray uh-huh. version, 
which is really cool. Got some really cool behind the scenes. The budget for this film was 4.1 Canadian dollars in 1981, and it grossed 14.2 million dollars. And that's United States dollars, not Canadian. So I was trying to look at the exchange rate, Canadian to US dollar. In 81, I think for every dollar you brought over to Canada was like equivalent to 1.1 Canadian dollar. Okay. So however that so transfers. It's a little bit more, 10% more. So, you know, if it made 14 million, <coughs> it's probably made what, like 15.4? Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> looking at it now, yeah. 15.4 million Canadian. It was, it was really cool. This film is filmed mostly in Montreal. Like I said, its release date was January 14th, 1981, here in the United States, and January 16th in Canada. There are three taglines. I'm only going to mention two because one is ridiculously well, long. Before we get to the taglines, <laughs> okay. if there's going to be a draw other than Cronenberg, let's hit the cast. Oh, yeah. Because there's one name for sure. That'll draw we'll, you in? We'll, yeah. That, oh, yeah. At least yeah. that would draw me in. Yeah, I yeah. I know it would draw you in as well, but that might be because of when we were brought up. True story. But Michael Ironside, Ironside, such a huge is name, the bad man. guy. Well, is the bad guy in this movie, but is probably the most interesting character in this movie. He is, and there's a number of reasons why. Like I said, I'll definitely delve into. But yeah, I mean, Ironside, he plays. I mean, we'll go ahead and say, but he plays Daryl Revick in this film. And you want to name a couple of his credits? Well, I was going to say once again, I can bring up the fact that the last time I saw him was on CW's Legends of Tomorrow playing Leonard Snart's father, Captain Cold's father. I had mentioned that Netflix had a little film that came out called Turbo Kid. He's a huge figure in that film, too. Thinking back for me, though, there's two roles that will always stick out for me. Mm -hmm. Love Top Gun, and he's Jester. Yes, he is. And love Starship Troopers, and he's Rackzack. All right, now, there's two films I'll name, right, which both of those I'm very familiar with. But two films that I would have remembered him from growing up would have been Total Recall, because he's definitely in that. And yeah, he's, Richter. Yeah, and he's also in quite arguably the worst one in oh, the franchise. Oh, I hope you're going to say what I, So that's what I was going to say. Kind, not really a guilty pleasure movie, because I take no pleasure in it. Yeah. But... I have loved the Highlander franchise. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to mention. <laughs> but he was in Highlander too. Now, there's a couple other films I do want to mention really quick. Now, a lot of people have probably, if especially if you're in our age group or demographic, you might have grown up with the film Free Willy. Oh, right. So oh, you've probably seen him in Free, Free Willy. Willy. If you're familiar with the Karate Kid, the franchise, you might have seen the Hilary Swank <laughs> The next Karate Kid, so you might have seen him in that. Hey, I've mentioned how many times on this podcast that I loved me some ER, and he was on the first season of yes, ER. Yes, he was. He was on back way back in the day in V, the television series, Oh, like Sequest 2032. A film that we have mentioned because Nick Castle directed it is Major Pain. He plays the father of one of the cadets That's in the film. Right. And we may have seen him also on a little show, no big deal, show called Smallville. And he's also a voice well, actor. I was going to say a Superman animated series. He was Dude. Dark Side. Yeah. I mean, he's also been in, I want to say it was like Splinter Cell maybe series. Oh, yeah, one he's of those. Sam Fisher in Splinter yeah. Cell. So, I mean, you've probably heard him in video games. You might have, like I said, heard him in animations. You might have seen him television series or in film. But this guy, man, he puts his weight in and he's a great actor. He really is. Yeah, so for me, that was one, like, yep, I'll watch Ironside. Sell, yeah, it was yeah. easy. It was easy. easy. Yep, give me Ironside all day long. Mm. Can Raxax Roughnecks, motherfucker. Yeah, boy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I was I was excited that Michael Ironside's in this for 
just the reasons we had just mentioned. All right, so th that's a huge draw, right, along with these others. Now, all right, I'll get back to my taglines because I love them. But the first one I'm not going to really mention, like I said, it's a laundry list. It's not even very accurate anymore because it mentions 4 billion people. <laughs> We're up to like 8 billion now. So anyway, I wrote down two. The first one, 10 seconds, the pain begins. 15 seconds, you can't breathe. 20 seconds, you explode. I was like, hold on. Did somebody know that I just had Indian curry that was really oh. spicy? See, I thought they were just watching me jack off. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, that too. Somebody choked me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I thought it was pretty interesting. It, it's fitting for the film for some reasons we'll get into, but it can also be relevant to a, a number of events that happens to everyday people. Uh, the second one is probably more straight to the point. Their thoughts can kill. All right, so that rounds up my behind the film all three of those taglines actually appear on the movie poster yeah they do it's not just like one was on one version of the poster so we gotta fill up these blank spaces version of the poster they all three appear on the same poster you saw the one at the top right yeah so i'm not reading that shit oh the, there are four billion people on earth 237 are scanners they have the most terrifying powers ever created and they are winning I actually kind of like that one, other than the fact it's outdated. Yeah. And well, not only that, but it's just like, I mean, that's like, it's more than a tagline. It's like, I do, uh, I do propose right now, we've been talking about this in the downtimes of the show, yeah. and the fact that we need to fill up these bare walls with some oh, more dude, yes, yes, yes. And I kind of propose maybe the Scanners poster. I, I like know. it. I do like I it a lot. I like that poster a lot. And I'm I would down. not mind having Ironside, basically, on our wall. I'm down. It's official. We'll get it. We'll get the scanner's poster. It's awesome. Also, the Grand Theft Auto will probably come down as we get more horror stuff. Oh, yeah. We need something up on the wall right now. But yeah, we're definitely <laughs> going to fill this bad boy out. But I think that's a good one to our entry. Yeah, dude. We just mentioned like all the people behind. We mentioned Michael Ironside being a huge draw. Now, some people... If you're of an older generation than us, then yeah, Patrick McGuhan. Yeah, so you probably are really familiar with him. So Patrick McGuhan plays Dr. Paul Ruth, which is an unfortunate name for some obvious reasons. Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. Come on. If you grew up in a certain time period, you knew who Dr. Ruth was. The little German sex freak. <laughs> doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, she wasn't a sex freak. She probably was. But uh, she always gave advice on just, you know, some sex. topics. Yeah, I mean, topics that a lot of people kind of shy away from. But she gave a lot of interesting insight into sexuality. So Patrick McGowan, you know, he was known for two television series way back in the day. I wrote both of them down. One of them was called Danger Man. And then he moved on and did a show called The Prisoner. The Prisoner. Yeah. Which was, I mean, I've heard of The Prisoner. Now, here's something I was reading about him, too, which is really cool. Now, Orson Welles, you know, known for Citizen Kane and all that stuff. Apparently, he had seen McGowan on stage. I can't remember the exact production or whatever the play was, but he said that McGoon was so good in his performance that he was actually intimidated and felt like he was going to be one of those actors that comes along once in a generation. Mm -hmm. um, so some of his early works kind of proved that. And then, of course, later on, he went on to do films like Escape from Alcatraz. He's been in some more recent films, who I wrote down. Our audience might be familiar with the film Braveheart. that stars... Uh, Little actor named Mel Gibson, no big deal. Right. All right. And he was also in The oh, Phantom. Too soon. <laughs> yeah, he was in The Phantom as The Phantom's dad. Oh, Jesus. 
like Billy Zane. Yeah, for real. Phantom. Yeah, yeah. The nineties. Been a while since I've seen that, but yeah, I guess I do kind of remember that. No, he was in a film too that I've seen. I couldn't place him in the film right off the top of my head, but if you're a fan of Richard Pryor or Gene Wilder, he was in Silver Streak. And he also did a lot of work with Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. He was considered for some roles in, like, The Exorcist and some other horror films. But because of his Catholic religion, because he grew up in Ireland. I think he was born in the States, but his family moved to England, and he spent a lot of time there and in Ireland. Anyway, uh, so he had to turn down a lot of work, but he wound up working for Disney, which is kind of ironic. But he also did some work on Columbo, the television series. Oh, yeah, so I like me some Columbo. Yeah, he's interesting in this film as Dr. Ruth. All right, some people from an older generation might know the name Jennifer O'Neill. She doesn't have a huge part, she does play an interesting part, but she plays Kim Obrist in this film. Now, the reason I mention her, there's a little film called Summer 42, which for a lot of gentlemen during a certain time period, she was kind of like a poster girl. <laughs> And mentioning about Poster Girl, she was also a spokesperson she was a cover girl, and a she? model she was... for Cover Girl. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like, I think inducted into the Hall of Fame for like models and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Just kind of an interesting. So I want to say shout out Latina girl making it because she was Brazilian American. Yeah, she certainly is. Now, here's something too that like, we don't necessarily always want to talk about people's personal lives, but I thought it was kind of interesting because it always gets brought up for whatever reasons. Well, <laughs> for whatever reasons. She was married, I think, like nine times with eight different husbands. She married her sixth husband twice. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, yeah, so that was kind of an interesting side note. I kept seeing people mentioned, but people might have been familiar with her, too. She also did some television series back in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, but she did some work on Bear Essence, a show called AD and Cover Up. She was also in a Chuck Norris film little film called a force of one Hmm. so you might have seen her with carlos in that film (laughs) now moving on from her is our protagonist our main actor our main character i should say in this film is stephen lack he plays cameron vale he doesn't have very many credits to his name he did another film with cronenberg and dead ringers before that he did some work with the film montreal maine and the rubber gun now with those films they were kind of more avant-garde art house style it was shot mostly in montreal's art district he lived kind of a a bohemian lifestyle he went to mcgill university studied art really wasn't into acting he just kind of fell upon it because he was a writer and a lot of his friends were filmmakers because of some of his work in those films he got cast for this part yeah so right now he's more known for his actual art he does a lot of acrylic art a lot of landscapes and things like that so it's kind of interesting Another actor in this film, which is kind of interesting, is a gentleman named Lawrence Dane. He plays Braden Keller. Now, people might have seen him in Bride of Chucky, maybe the film Happy Birthday to Me, Dark Man Part 2. He was in the television series Mod Squad back in the day, television series Mission Impossible, and a Canadian show I've actually seen a few times. It's called The Red Green Show. Mm. So people might be familiar with him in that. I've seen some Red Green Show. Not a lot of Red Green Show. Yeah, it's pretty I've seen decent. Some Red Green Show. There's another gentleman I'll mention. His name is Robert Silverman. He plays Benjamin Pierce, which is a funny name for some reasons. If you're familiar with the show Mash, it is Alan Alda's character's name. 
<laughs> and that right. Hawkeye. <laughs> so I was like, that was kind of funny, man. I don't know if he did that intentionally. But Robert Silverman, he was in the film Rabbit, which is another Cronenberg film. He was in the film Prom Night. He was in the Friday the 13th television series, which is actually a Toronto production from like the late 80s. Actually, I own the entire series, which is pretty awesome. He was also, let's see, in Waterworld. He was in I Naked love me some Lunch. Waterworld. Yeah. He was Naked in... Lunch is also Cronenberg, isn't it? Yes, it is, mm-hmm. which is another William S. Burroughs adaptation. He was in Existence. He was also in Jason X as Dieter Perez. So I didn't want to mention that. This guy doesn't have a lot of screen time. He's very important for one main reason. I hope you're about to name Louis Del Grand. That's exactly who uh, it is. Because he's the first scanner. He's the first scanner who's the most iconic part of this entire movie. Oh my god. And he was also the head writer for I don't know if I could say extremely successful, but for a successful Canadian sitcom called King of Kensington. Yeah, I wrote that down and uh, Seeing Things, which is another one. He did some television work on Due South, The Outer Limits, and Goosebumps. There's a show that keeps popping up a lot. So if any of our Canadian listeners are listening, I'm going to mention this show because if you're not familiar with it, your parents might be, especially if they're Canadian. But there was a show called The Littlest Hobo, which is a show about kind of a a vagabond dog, (laughs) just kind of a drifting dog. But a lot of these actors were actually made either like guest appearances or like regulars on that show. So I did want to mention that because that was a huge Canadian show back in the day, which Louis Delgrand was a part of. Now, this gentleman, I couldn't point him out, even if you pointed him out to me, but this guy's name is Neil Affleck. I did want to mention him. He has like all of maybe three to five seconds of screen time on this film. He is credited as the medical student in Mall. And I was like, all right, why are we getting that as a credit in this film? Well, Neil Affleck, he's done work. He was a major, uh, actually, player in the film My Bloody Valentine from 1981, Mm -hmm. classic slasher. And then he started doing a lot of animation. He was an animator on Garfield, the television series. He was an animator for Rugrats, Rocco's Modern Life, The Critic, King of the Hill, and a little show show called The Simpsons. Both the movie and the television series. Now, he was an animator. He was an animation and sheet timer a lot of those times. But I was like, well, now I know why the fuck they put him in these credits. Because it's like, wow, that's that was really cool. Yeah, he animated 52 Simpsons episodes and actually directed seven. Yeah, it's really cool, man. So he's done some really cool work outside of just acting. So yeah, I did want to mention him. Outside of that, man, that's pretty much rounds up my cast. Now, there's some other people that, you know, kind of pop in and out. They're just kind of bit players, but... Overall, that's, that's my guts and bolts of this film. I know uh, we have to give warnings. Yeah, warnings might be a good idea. We mentioned body horror, right? Because yes. heads literally explode in this fucking movie. Yes, they do. So if you're not comfortable with like gore and blood and explosions, because there's a lot of explosions. I mean, overall, too. it's not that bad, but not the parts really. that happen are kind of like, are pretty gnarly. So. Yeah. It has themes of, if you're not comfortable with themes of ESP, extrasensory powers and you know stuff like that you might not be comfortable with this film for whatever reasons yeah there's some Although there's we some already language. said it's basically two psychics fighting each yeah other, i mean so by then you're probably already out you but been, if you're but, still hanging on <laughs> yeah just gotta warn you it if isn't you it. have a thing against psychics uh, good luck <laughs> if you have a thing they against know <laughs> fictional psychics trying to kill each other with their minds stay paranoid then don't watch this movie <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. But uh, yeah, a little bit of violence, a little bit of language, 
Is there a little bit of language? I hardly even noticed that, honestly. If there is, it's not much at all. Yeah, I think they were too Canadian. Canadian, they're pretty polite. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were way too Canadian for that. There was no hockey in this, and there was not a lot of violence. No. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say here in the guts and bolts. Should we move on to how this movie made us squeal? I'm about to squeal in my pants. All right, yeah, let's squeal all over this bitch. Whee! How does that make you squeal? All right, so there was something that I needed to mention right off the bat that contributed a lot to my viewing experience of this movie for this podcast. A week ago, this happened with one other movie, and I couldn't remember which one it was, but a week ago, if you would have asked me if I'd seen Scanners, I would have said, of course I'd seen Scanners. I was absolutely convinced I'd seen Scanners. I honestly thought I'd seen Scanners before. I will tell you right now, when I watched this movie last night, I realized I have never seen Scanners past the point where the dude's head explodes. Oh shit. Which is only like... 13 minutes into the movie. If that, yeah. So, no, this is one of those films, which I think that's a cool note, man. And that's kind of the fun of doing these, too. Sometimes they jar your memory a little bit more than you remembered. But for me, growing up, this is one of the few films at an early stage in my life, now, mind you, where it kind of freaked me out a little bit, especially with things that I couldn't maybe perceive, like, you know, when you're dealing with a subject like telekinesis and telepathy and just body horror and stuff like that for a younger kid that's kind of a lot that's a heavy subject to take in so it was one of those few films that kind of struck a chord with me when i was younger and i remembered as you know an adult and especially my teens and stuff like that but yeah i enjoy this film it's you know it's one of those i remember i don't always watch it but i do remember it and i don't know when i saw that first 13 minutes of the movie I know that I've seen at least that much because that was all familiar. The shit down in the eating area and the woman could Oh, yeah, in the mall and the food court and all that mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. And then in t- later on into the test and shit. But I realized I'd never seen any of the movie past that. Okay, so you kind of got a, a nice fresh impression on the film. Whereas, like I said, I'd seen it before and it had been a long while. But yeah, that's I kind of like that approach too. So that being said... Having come at this with mostly fresh eyes, and here's the thing, I honestly feel like nobody has entirely virgin eyes to this movie, because at some point, if you're online enough to have found a podcast, you're online enough to have seen somebody use the gif of the fucking head exploding. Oh, I would imagine so. I mean, that's a popular one, but I mean, that's what this film is known for, is for that scene. So no one, I think, is a complete virgin of this movie. Everyone's seen a second of this movie. Great point. And now, looking on it, the film came out in 1981, which we had mentioned earlier, which is my birth year as well. So it's an old fucker, just like me right now. (laughs) So this film has been around for almost 37 years now. Actually, it has been around for 37 years. In a row? (laughs) Yeah. Get back over here. Anywho, so... At some point, you probably either heard of it or you're familiar with Cronenberg, Ironside, etc. And it also plays a big part in a lot of special effects for later on, which I'll mention as well. And that's the thing. That being said, seeing it with fresh eyes, being able to now relate to it now and everything, I see why it's regarded so highly. There's things about it I don't like, yeah. but I realize that they're very conscious choices and they do add to it. 
it just made it kind of really slow for me at points. Yeah, it's not a quick-paced film, but there's reasons for that, too. You know, since we are... And that's the thing. There's reasons, and I know the reasons yeah. for it, and it makes me appreciate it. But at the same time, it doesn't make me I know enjoy what you mean. watching the movie more. That's quite understandable. It, it makes me enjoy thinking about the movie more later on. Yeah. But when sure. I'm actually watching it, not as <laughs> Not much. so much. This might be a comparison a little bit because we have covered another film that it reminded me of slightly slightly it reminded me of the pacing a little bit of halloween 3 okay you know just like so just the pacing some of the beats and things like that in the film like so if you're a fan of that yet yeah, this might be an easy transition too into cronenberg if you're not familiar with them with scanners uh, and to be honest this is a movie where the more i learn about it and the more i think about it the more and more i like it because i really like i said the characterizations and things are better to think about than to see and like the way that story is played with and shit, but some of the just ingenious shit. Now this maybe would have been a note a little bit better for the guts and bolts. That's okay. But it is a fact that I learned that made me appreciate the movie even more is the fact that because of the weird things going on within the Canadian movie system at the time, they had to go into production with very little pre-production time exactly. and with an unfinished script. There were literally days on the set where. Cronenberg would start his day by waking up, writing a couple pages, then they would jump into a car and drive around, try to find somewhere that they could actually shoot. Isn't that unreal? And then would shoot it all out of order. When you're put up against those circumstances, too, now... That like, could have been the recipe for, like, the worst clusterfuck ever. Like, it could you're have having been. to do this story out of order. It's Sometimes unreal. you're, you know, shooting, and the story's still 20 pages away from even being done. Yeah, and you have to think in advance. And you have, like, an hour in advance for location. Gosh, man. So, I mean, every day it's a rush against the clock. So, you're right. It does make you appreciate kind of the the finer details in the films and, you know, stuff that is put into it, which helped me appreciate it more, too, because at that time for a Canadian film, they said a lot of their revenue, like, they would make a lot of money during like the spring and the summer and then during the fall and the winter. That's when they would like, okay, now because of tax reasons, we can spend money on films because, you know, for whatever reasons in Canada, I guess they get a lot of that stuff tax written off. So they'll spend money on films then. But you're also dealing with the elements in Canada, <laughs> which, you know, this film was shot in a lot of the first kind of scenes without reshoots. A lot of it was shot in the winter. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of the actors had to deal with the elements and things like that, too. But aside from that, man, I guess kind of delving into the film, too, unless you got... Well, the other thing I want to say is that I think this is another one we might want to still... I mean, we're going to have to talk about spoilery shit, but I don't want to go... I don't want to plunge straight through because this movie is good enough that people need to go experience this. You know, and... So if you haven't watched Scanners yet, maybe, like, stop fucking listening to us right now. Go check it out, for sure. Go watch it and then come back. Because we're going to hit some spoilery shit, but I don't want to just, like, go through this. It's good enough to avoid just going through. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward story with some nice twists and stuff like that. So I guess the main just... We just kind of want to gloss over it. So one of the first characters we're introduced to, I guess our main character, our lead guy, fucking, what's his name? It's Uh, Cameron Bell. Yeah, played by Stephen Lack. That's the part I don't like. I realize his characterization is sort of integral to how this movie plays with, like, the hero's journey and shit. But throughout this entire movie, he's a blank slate. 
His lines are very cold. He's kind of stilted a little bit, you know? Not sure if it's on purpose or if that's actually, like, his technique. Honestly, after my first time through, I kind of thought it was just bad acting and I had to look it up. The guy's actually really good. He's done a wide range of emotive performances. Yeah, I mean, that's... And this was absolutely a choice. And it's a choice that I didn't delve far enough into behind-the-scenes shit to see if Cronenberg worked with him on this choice. But considering some of the things that this movie does with its narrative, I believe was a very conscious choice. This was an interesting movie for me because the other night I sat down to work on a little project of putting together my new kitchen table, and I just wanted to throw something on in the background. Yeah. And it was, fuck, something on Netflix, Fable, Myths and Monsters, or something like that. Little docu-series. And I watched most of the first episode. And the first episode was all about Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and the Hero's Journey, which people would recognize through that's exactly what Star Wars is based on, Okay, is the Hero's Journey. And it's what most like myths and legends are, break down to these different archetypes of how this story gets told. This entire movie plays with that, and I thought it was really neat to see that unfold right in front of me. This... It makes fun of it almost. It deconstructs it down to the point where you see kind of the the shallowness of that writing style, but how effective it can be. Yeah, that's interesting. Sorry, I'm going to really nerd out on the hero's journey for a second because <laughs> there's cool. a lot of really neat little things. I'm not going to point out every little bit of the hero's journey, especially because not every story based on the hero's journey hits every single part, but it always goes around in like this cycle where you start with like the status quo and you have a, a character plucked from obscurity by a mentor who gives them powers. I said that like Star Wars is based on the hero's journey. You have Luke as the farm boy on Tatooine who right. runs into Obi-Wan who brings him into a new world, quote unquote, just a new you know status quo yeah. of, by the way, now you have powers, you're special for some reason, you're the one, you're the chosen one. And in this movie, that's Cameron Vale is literally living a life on the streets and is plucked from obscurity into a world where he has powers by a mentor. Yeah, exactly. Which is really interesting, like the whole play on that narrative where you're right, you have a drifter of sorts, likes to get put into a position of power. And in this case, just like in other cases too, he has to go against a bad guy. I can't remember the exact order of all the heroes' journey and shit, but it all involves like running into people that become companions of sorts. They don't. Oh, yeah, they don't cause. always like follow them on their journey, but he makes allies of sorts. In a Star Wars, that would be like Han and Chewie, yeah, and the droids and shit. And in this, it's kind of consec in the beginning, mm -hmm. along with the fact that Kim is sort of. I mean, I guess she doesn't appear till 37 minutes into the movie. Yeah, it takes a while before she's actually introduced. But, once she, but she kind of gets that he's doing something from her. He doesn't understand who she is from the get-go, but she's kind of on his side from the get-go because she understands that he's a scanner and stuff. Yeah, yeah, she understands his plight. And then there's also him meeting up with the other scanners in Revic's group. Yeah. Ironside's group. Yeah, he's a little henchman. And how that didn't last for a long time, but it truly was like meeting up with allies and shit. Mm -hmm. We'll get into how it's playing with it, though. Yeah. And then there's like trials that they have to go through, usually like life and death sort of things, which would be like the attack on the van. 
And then later on, there's a duel to the death against the big baddie, which is literally his duel against. Yeah. And like revelations and shit. You have, like I already said, a mentor along the way. Now this story plays with it. You end up having the twist that the mentor is your father. And isn't a good guy at all. Yeah, I know. He's the one that set up the entire situation and sent the hero on his journey specifically to kill the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And so it makes you question what the point of the hero is in the first place. Like, is he really the hero? Because if this was engineered by the mentor, then all yeah. he is is an assassin. Exactly. He's just another pawn in the game. He's maybe with better equipped powers. And they make the hero literally a blank slate who only exists to further the plot. Yeah, exactly. All the characters around him are more important, which in the hero's journey, technically they are. The hero usually can't, even though he's the chosen one, he can't get by without their help and their help revealing things to him about himself. Yeah, exactly. And in this movie, he's a blank slate. Yeah, he is. Who only exists to further the plot along. It's unique how that plays right into that narrative, too, because it gets played out and unfurled. Yeah. And then you (laughs) have a big bad who is the one to give the big revealing speech and is only the big bad because of the way that he was treated by the mentor. (laughs) Yeah. God damn yous. Who then literally is like the worst villain in all of this. Dr. Ruth is the worst villain in this entire movie because he's literally created mutant sons Mm -hmm. and when one son got out of hand to the point where he couldn't handle them he abandons them both yeah he puts (laughs) literally he puts one on pause (laughs) and lets one live on the streets as a homeless person constantly surveilling him his entire life until he needs him Yeah, goddamn. And when he needs him, what he needs him for is to assassinate his own brother. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole plot. Unbeknownst to him. Right. That's the actual synopsis for this movie, is Dr. Ruth in the beginning of this movie seems like the most sympathetic character in this movie, because in, like, the board meeting and shit, he seems like the only one who, like, cares about the fact that there's scanners. Yeah, everybody else just kind of observing, like, this is weird... This is a weird thing. But, you know, when you try to sympathize with Cameron Vale, and he is a hard person to sympathize with in certain ways because he's so stilted, but... Oh, that's the other thing. They meet a love interest. Mm -hmm. In the hero's journey, one of the allies they meet tends to be a love interest. They subvert it in this movie by when he meets the female counterpart to him, she's absolutely not a love interest and is instead the person to tell him, you're barely even human. She is exactly what she told them. <laughs> Whereas in any other traditional story, with the way that they meet and the things that they go through, they absolutely would have ended up... Hooking up. Mm-hmm. And him making allies and running into all these people and seeking out the different parts of his quest is directly, unbeknownst to him, what leads to all of their demise because he's being tracked the entire time. Yeah, exactly. He's a moving target every time. This movie's fantastic and that. We just literally went through the entire plot. I mean, plot, that's basically what yeah. the, the entire plot is. <laughs> but, you know, the, all the action, like it's the beats that are involved with it, too. I mean, it fits along that plot. That is really kind of interesting. Kind of leaves you dumbfounded a little bit, too. God damn it. There was one other thing that was neat. I did a lot of reading on this movie because it fucking, it astounded me. Mm-hmm. 
how brilliant it actually was. The other really weird thing, though, in this movie, if you weren't able to listen, I think that it's what impacts the pacing. And it's the thing that I'm critical of in this movie. I kind of hope that they remake this movie. Like it's a possibility. I know that they, they've made a shit ton of sequels, right? Have you ever seen any of the sequels? If I have, I don't remember them. I've heard that they're not good. Yeah, and that's probably why I don't remember them. I've heard that they barely have anything to do with this one. Yeah, Cronenberg had nothing to do with this. I know that he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, them. because I know he didn't copyright his work. said that they're not canon, that that is not the way that the story continues. It would be interesting to see if he were able to readaptate his own film, you know, because it, he would have a lot more freedom, I would imagine, to tell the story as he wanted to tell it, as opposed to having these deadlines he had to meet and crunch and all that stuff, but... Doesn't take anything away from the film though, as a whole. It just you can tell that it's it's kind of lacking in certain areas. But the one thing that really impacts the pacing, I felt, was that this movie does a lot of telling you things instead of showing you things to the point where I realized, especially after reading some people's comments online, and then I was paying attention to it my second viewing through. If you were to like watch this movie without the sound on. It appears, even though the plot is Ironside, is basically being Magneto. I've seen the X-Men kind of references, too, yeah. He feels, much like Magneto feels, mutants are superior and wants to build... An army. Mutant world. Yeah. Like, he wants to create an army of mutants to just take over and make it so everybody's mutants. Ironside wants everybody to be scanners. He's like, we're obviously superior, like, we can fuck things up. We can take this bitch. My first scene fucking proved that. I fucked everybody up. Yeah. Didn't take long. And we all know that they're powerful, and he knows that you can make them. Oh, yeah. I mean, You don't know that until later in the movie, but he knows you can make them. So that's his plot. But if you watch this movie without the sound on, it doesn't seem like Ironside wants to establish Scanner Utopia. He is directly responsible for the death of every Scanner in this movie either through his own actions, like blowing the fucking guy's head up, or by literally being the guy to order somebody to kill the other scanner. He is directly involved one way or the other. It literally looks like he's a scanner trying to wipe out, not make other scanners, but wipe Wipe out (laughs) all the other scanners, and there is nothing shown to actually show what his plot is. (laughs) That's, uh... It's a good way of looking at it, too, without the sound on. And that's why, in a lot of reasons, sound is important in film. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Howard Shore on this. But I think that does affect the pacing. But I think that's also to sort of emphasize the fact that, like, it's kind of playing with the hero's journey. He's supposed to be the big bad. And so they're showing him be the guy, kill everybody. But, I mean, at the end of it, fucking Cameron winning doesn't really excite me. It just, it kind of leaves you with a lot more questions than answers. I feel like Cameron winning, he's barely even a person. Like, well, that's what she told Fucking me. dude was a psychopath, but he was able to function. He became the fucking CEO of a high level fucking company. Yeah. He was putting things in order. Like, well, you know, that's the he thing. He was able too. to function in society and actually be a fucking person. Yeah. But he was advocating, I guess, for. I mean, he would have been advocating for our fucking deaths because he wanted an all-scanner society. You know, right up to that point where they have, you know, their final showdown, he actually calls him out on that, too. Like, he starts to ask Vale, you know, about his parents. He's like, do you remember your mom? you remember your dad? you remember your any childhood memories? Like, no, no, no. 
So that kind of lends a hand too. Like like you said, this guy was just programmed. You know, he was a mutant. You don't really get a backstory outside of him just entering that mall, <laughs> and he looks like a vagabond. But you don't know if that was like when he was programmed or defaulted because he kind of lends that too. Like um, Ironside, he mentions, he's like, you know, you were just pretty much brought into this, like I said, to carry on the plot. So was he from birth all the way up to this point? What exactly was going on with that character? I mean, it was implied that as soon as Ironside fucked up, yeah, I mean, they were both cast aside. Yeah, but yeah, it doesn't make sense. At a certain point, like, you know, growing up and blah, 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 but... You would imagine, like I said, he would have some more character than what he's giving off. But that's kind of the point, which yeah. is the neat thing, but it's so-so. God, I don't know. Like I said, the movie is genius in a lot of ways, but it doesn't make it more interesting to watch. It just makes it interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. There's certain things, with the special effects I didn't want to mention, because it did a few things that I thought was really cool. Starting off with the film, they had you know certain makeup artists and effects guys and whatnot. And during the first shootings, like during those winter months... They're having a lot of issues with some of the final product with the special effects. So because of certain contacts and certain affiliations, Dick Smith was brought on board. Now, Dick Smith, I mentioned, was the godfather of special effects makeup. And he started making all the dicks on set. So big. Smithing all these dicks. You would not believe. I. So there was one film in particular that he did special effects for. It was. It's called Little Big Man, which is a Dustin Hoffman it's film. movie. Yeah. So anyhow, there were some lenses, like eye lenses, that he created for certain scenes and whatnot. But during that final sequence, the scanner showdown, I suppose if you want to call it that, you know, Ironside's eyes, they change. And they used Dustin Hoffman's lenses from that film as he's going blind in The Little Big Man for Ironside to give the effect of, you know, having the same shade of Stephen Lack's eyes and stuff like that. So it was kind of neat they were using that, but... The major thing was this. He developed this technique, like when you mold plaster or like a mold for an actor's face or whatnot. He would use this adhesive paint called Evocite. Mm -hmm. So he would layer it with that. And then he would use this rubber material, dental dam, to give the effects of those veins. All right? And then he would put another layer of that Evocite and whatnot. And after that, you know, they said you could use pneumatics, air tubes, pumping blood and stuff like that. So he was the one who developed that technique because it was supposed to be used for the movie Altered States, which actually oh, okay. got put off of production. It got shut down for whatever reasons. And so he used it in this film instead. So that was a brand new technique. Another gentleman I mentioned earlier, Gary Zeller, he was the pyrotechnics guy on this film. David Cronenberg wanted there certain sequence when Ironside's eyes were going pure white yeah and you get this shot of like the flames coming off of veil veil yeah so he said that cronenberg wanted like he said i want to feel the heat from that scene and zeller was like well i knew i couldn't just do like a little flame right around the neck you know it's like a, he said like a fire bar or some shit he said i know how to go big so he developed this water-based it's an organic repellent of fire and it's called the zell gel he developed that for this foam and it's used today because it doesn't burn people he's like it's just it kind of keeps it in place you know it doesn't burn you it's just, it just repels the, the heat it's kind of interesting but anyway he developed that for this movie too so some of those techniques were developed on this film and i even heard like the use of nose bleeding for headaches and some of those sequences was kind of like it spawned from this film and I, I was actually about to bring that up is it's kind of a hard thing to portray a psychic battle 
on film. Yeah, because you it can't looks see like it. people just squinting really hard at each other. And it, it's funny because there are certain scenes that do portray that, but I think because it's ratcheted up with the music and and so that's one of the things yeah. that one of the things I really like about this. And if they ever do remake this. First off, because I already mentioned, I kind of hope that they remake this. I, I would imagine they will at some point. Um, if they ever remake this, I do want to see the powers ratcheted up, like them having to deal with more people and make <laughs> yeah. it more gruesome. Oh, you definitely could. But I still want, like, even though I want the powers ratcheted up, I still want it to have drawbacks. I still want it to suck for the scanner. I still want them to not have full control of the fact that they're like not able to shut out the voices and the physical side effects like they're not having a good time when they're actually actively using their scanning powers and most of the time it causes their nose to bleed and yeah, it causes the other people's effects. nose to bleed and this was the first time that was used and it's been continued to be used because there's not really good ways to like nosebleeds ear bleeds and eye bleeds are the best way to show psychic powers being used thanks to this movie <laughs> i think not intentionally for us but in a lot of ways this is kind of a foundational film for later practical effects i was gonna say i read the book and loved the movie firestarter and it's used in that and that was just a couple of years later because it's really hard in the book it's like mini cerebral hemorrhaging how are you going to show that on screen yeah so there you go another thing i like too in this film a little bit i mean it of course it's dated now but just how he, they incorporated showing the circuitry inside the uh, the computer, even though the computer is all the fucking dust now, you know. But mm-hmm. I still like his use of that kind of shot too, with that little montage sequence. But I think that was kind of interesting. You brought up earlier, like just the hero's tale. I was like, nah, that kind of fucking to a T in this film, man. But then they play with it the entire time, and yeah. they're like, nope, this is what you get. Yeah. And then, by the way, the mentor is going to be the fuck. It's not even spelled out at the very end. Like you have to put together. Between all the shit that you know he's done from the beginning of the movie, because those guys were following him the entire time. Yeah. Because they were right on Vale as soon as he started fucking with that woman. That's all it took. I mean, they were all over him. They were always watching him. Even in that doctor's office and stuff. Ruth Ruth always knew about him. When the panel knew, like, do you have any other agents? He's like, one other one that's, you know undocumented, because he's been keeping him under wraps the entire time, because he's his kid. Yeah. It's my boy. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, this is a, a very interesting tale looking at it now, you know, from an adult's perspective. Because, like I said, at, at an early age when I first saw this, this film kind of, it weirded me out in the sense that, like, it's hard to, I guess at that age, relate it to anything, <laughs> you know, because it's a different experience, it's a new experience, and it's, when they're going through that body change, I think that's the part that kind of freaked me out more than anything, more so than, like, the head exploding and shit like that. So, the ending... Do you think it's completely Vale? Do you think Vale won? Do you think Gravik's still in there? I think Gravik's still in there. I think it's, it's a lot. Well. More, I think it's a lot more interesting if the sequel was Revik retaking power and trying to keep that secret from everyone else. Here's the funny thing: even though it's probably not related, I hope it is. Looking at that, you know, it's like all right, there can be only one. And Vale jumped into Ironside, and Ironside just so happened to be in Highlander. <laughs> so there is an essence of him still in there. But I think it's Vale is in there now. But I want you know. I want a sequel, and I want Revik to be retaking control in the sequel, and him to be having to keep it could be obviously like his, keep it secret because everyone trusts Vale now. His voice leeches out and tells him to do shit. Mm-hmm. 
you can hear me, Cameron. But yeah, I think it's pretty cool, man. I think, like I said, knowing that Ironside is in this, like I said, is a huge draw on him being Cronenberg. And this being his very first film that was critically acclaimed at the box office, like it was a smash. It got him notoriety, you know, which is kind of ironic in a sense. Like in Canada, he wasn't really cherished for his work initially, which is it's kind of seen as something perverse and, you know, just kind of offhand. Oh, no shit. You know, Canada. <laughs> They're not really used to that. And at the time that he shot Shivers, maybe two or three Canadian films were actually horror films. And like that wasn't really something they were really into at that mm-hmm. time. So that was kind of a new endeavor. But anyhow, after films like that, and then of course his success with Videodrome and Naked Lunch and so forth, he started winning like all kinds of recognition awards. And like he is, when you look at like some of the top awards given to Canadian citizens and people in film and just in entertainment, he's either won them or he's been knighted or he's just, he's got this ungodly amount of these awards attached to him. But initially he wasn't. It took him a while, you know, to be recognized for his work. Like I said, for us to get into it, I mean, we could have come from all kinds of different directions, probably with some other films, but I enjoy this one, man. It's pretty interesting. This isn't the only movie that does it. I can't think of other specific examples now, but there's many other movies that do it, and it's always a gripe that I run into. Mm-hmm. It's a one trope that this movie falls into that I don't care for too much is that the first generation of things is the best. <laughs> yeah. Simply the best. But Revic and Vale are the two best scanners, but they were the very first ones made. Everything else is... is Everything, all the rest of them are dog shit compared to them. Yeah, they're just they're replicates. It is funny. They're first generation, like you said. And I like... I mean, you've seen it in our lifetimes. Like, when has shit ever actually went that way? You tell me, man. <laughs> yeah. At least on the large scale. You know yeah. what I mean? Maybe certain things here and there might have went on a small scale that way, but that's why you buy them at the dollar store. You know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, the, I mean, just our fucking smartphones can do all the shit that we were thinking of were fucking sci-fi when we were kids. It's a reality now. And so, I mean, shit gets better. It does. And there's a lot of these movies that are kind of sci-fi leaning where that first generation, for some reason, is the big bad extreme version. <laughs> yeah. However, I did want to point out, I didn't read through all of this yet. I just read through a quick breakdown. Mm -hmm. Someone else did a review. You can find a link to it. Well, so I read the little breakdown on tvtropes.org. Okay. People might be familiar with that if they spend any amount of time online. And it's a fun little resource to see how movies are put together of these different story archetypes just all being thrown together. And how everything's kind of essentially a remix from a bunch of other shit that's been done before. Something I get down on a lot, to be completely honest. Yeah. Uh, but for and the TV Tropes page for this film, I didn't catch this myself. Okay. But we pointed out when doing The Shining that a lot of this really great art, because it captures on certain themes, like the hero's journey and such, even if the story is unique, the way it's being told isn't necessarily unique. Mm-hmm. And power struggles have always existed in this and that. Yeah. Even if it wasn't the intent, sometimes stories can tell other stories as well that just weren't intentional, but the art can still be interpreted that way. Oh, yeah. So this one reviewer points out that this movie is actually a fairly good examination of the post-World War II generational conflict. Huh. Kim Obrist represents the hippies, Revic representing yuppies, and Ruth is the greatest generation. 
especially because he's Revik and Vale's father. This is just a breakdown as it's written up on TV tropes, and there is a uh, link to go into the huge breakdown, which is actually like a big essay that really breaks all of this down. Oh, yeah, yeah. But in the ending, Revik kills Vale, but in the process, Vale is able to imprint his consciousness onto Revik. The combined entity inheriting the father's company and power representing in a weirdly prescient portrayal of the internet generation pre-war power and yuppie greed tempered by hippie communism <laughs> yeah communalism yeah. not communism but no here's something that really lends a big hand to it too now i'd mentioned that with the criterion collection it includes certain special features and one was interviews and they interviewed michael ironside and he had mentioned that when he was offered the role it was only just for like a weekend shoot it was during that flashback sequence where you get like this archival footage of him at a younger age. And later on, because of writing, because of how the story was regressing, he got written more into a, a bigger role. Aside from that, he was only offered like $5,300 maybe for this role. Oh, wow. Right? And he learned of Jennifer O'Neill's figure much later on. But point being is he was talking about his character. We're talking about politics here a little bit. He said he's seen his character as like a Che Guevara type of character. Uh, you know, the government created me, so this is what I am. Mm-hmm. So it kind of plays on that. You know, like person put into this role because of powers to be, which, in, you know, in this case is his father and stuff like that. So it creates this, you know, like I said, this yuppie kind of character and these counter-revolutionaries like Kim Obrist and... You know, <laughs> it's really cool how they play on that social because it is, he said it was like a social commentary. It's a political commentary. It's, you know, he said there's a lot of angles involved with the storytelling. I mean, I think it's kind of neat that by the end of this movie with all the revelations, there's not really any sympathetic character. No. It's just, you're right. It's just a story that's, you, you get to watch her quarrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can sympathize with her for the sake of their plight, you mm-hmm. know, but everybody else is just kind of a pawn in this larger scheme of things. Also, just as another observation, I wanted to point out that if I was a scanner, there's no way I would have done the fucking giant mind link thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of funny. There are most days I don't want to deal with people that much just talking to them. I don't want to fucking link minds with an entire group of other people just because they're scanners. Okay, I'm going to throw out a super, super random just piece of trivia here right so there's a scene in this film where the indoctrination for veil is happening where he has to actually speed up the heartbeat of the the, yoga mm -hmm. master right but he says something at the end of it after everything occurs he stands up and he looks down at dr ruth and he says you're right it was easy i was like hold on Mm-hmm. That was one of Tyler and our lines <laughs> in a video we just shot. So. I was like, and he just fun. had a Jafar moment. <laughs> and easy. You're right, Drew. It was important and fun and easy. It's like, wow, he just Jafar'd it. Oh, man, I didn't even think about that. Oh, it totally reminded me of that. I said, that's just a super random reference. That, that was 0%. the first. On my first time through, though, that was the first moment I was like, are we supposed to be rooting for this guy? Because yeah. he just about killed the guy and then popped his heart right back into place where it's supposed to be just to sort of show them all that he could do it. I can do this. It was funny. He was toying with them. I mean, that's what he was doing. I but was yeah. like, um, what are they doing with this? Like, this <laughs> yeah. is interesting. I 
I don't like him. <laughs> Here's something that's really cool. It's a little side nugget for those who are interested. Because Zeller was on, you know, the scene of this movie because he helped do the pyrotechnics and whatnot. There's a sequence in the phone booth where mm-hmm. things are exploding and all that shit. He said there was like a large audience of people who were watching like this car wrecks and stuff like that. But he said during it, he said there were certain timings like he knew this thing was going to explode and this thing was going to explode. But he said something didn't explode at a certain time and he knew it was just a matter of time. And people were like oh. trying to get on set and like, you know, he said it was like 4th of July for them, you know, seeing all this shit explode but he kept them at bay and that thing finally exploded so they were like you know it was a good thing he was on set but it just goes to show like a lot of these guys they were winging it a lot i wanted to point that out like the fucking oh yeah out of it and shit it's really cool man so a lot of the practical effects are super dope in this film man i really Uh, like that a lot we should probably bring very special mention to the head exploding effect yeah that's kind of what i wanted to mention too because there was some really cool shit i'd mentioned 12 gauge right yeah so there were some techniques that they used and a lot of this was richard smith coming on set because of this so some of the guys i mentioned earlier like dupuis and wallas and stuff like that these guys were brought on board because of some of their expertise in other films and anyhow they were having a hard time figuring out how to get this fucking head to explode right on film and they said they were using like wax models and he just he's like you know just look like wax blowing up and they were using this and it just looked like this blown up so because Zeller, he was a chemist too. The guy was responsible for the okay. pyrotechnics. But he specialized in like synthesized rubbers. And he actually used more silicon-based rubber, more so than like latex and shit. Mm-hmm. And that was something that Dick Smith specialized in. So anyhow, once they developed Dick the mold. Dick Smith specialized in rubbers? Yes, he did. Silicon, water-based. <laughs> it gave it more flesh-like, human-like qualities you know flexibility and balance and all that elasticity anyhow so they made some flashlights hey they did because <laughs> they filled it up with some nasty shit <laughs> here's what they did after they made the mold of del grande they started putting like they said like leftover lunches the said he's like yeah we were putting uh the hamburgers in there because that's the shit we were eating back then <laughs> right <laughs> and then the other guy was like yeah we were putting like stringy stuff in there and the other guy was like yeah we're pumping it with blood and just you know, rabbit livers and anyhow, like after that, like they sealed it up and then, you know, they got the space they got, like they cut out just for that sequence because Ironside said that he wasn't going to be in that shot. They just wanted to do one take with him next to it. He's like, not unless you could insure me for this much Mm -hmm. and guarantee me this much. They're like, now we're just shoot it by itself. So anyway, long story short, they got it from a university in Montreal and they isolated that guy's plaster and they use the molds. This is a makeup artist. Wallace said, he's like, those are my hands mm-hmm. when they explode. But anyway, long story short, is they didn't know how to create the effect of it exploding right. Because that was one of the, the hardest things they had going for them. So anyhow, Zeller's like, I'm tired of the bullshit. And he said he grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun. He laid down in position and aimed it at the angle of the back of the head mm-hmm. and shot it. Now, he didn't shoot it with just like buckshot or you know any ordinary 12-gauge shells. He said, the trick was, he says, if you're going to do this, he said, don't do it at home, first and foremost. <laughs> he said, but if you're going to do this professionally, he says, you need to use kosher salt. Oh. And he said, you know, you use your caro syrup for those who want to make fake blood. Mm. You use that. And he said, the reason why is because when you're shooting it, it doesn't give the glare and it doesn't give the effect like you're seeing something that you shouldn't be seeing, you know, like this weird effect. He said, it just blends right in. So that's how they Good pulled it know. off. Yeah. Oh, shit. Kosher salt. Good to know. Yeah, stuff it in those shells. 
And he said it worked perfect. One shot. And they what said, about Himalayan salt? Do you think the pink would blend in even more? Yeah, possibly. It'd give you like even an, a nicer pinkish, fleshish looking color, perhaps. There you go, for those who want to know. Um, there we go, update. Use uh, pink salt. Pink salt, Himalayan pink salt. Yeah. yeah. But I thought that was kind of cool, too. Like Some of those things they talked about, some of the stuff they had to pull off, because they were had to go along with the way that Cronenberg was writing, too. They didn't know exactly what they are going to do. So day in and day out, they were like working in these makeshift oh, labs. Oh, so I bet. You know, pulling off all these stunts. and I can only imagine. Neat. That sounds like it was a hell process to go through it. And they said because of that, they had to reshoot. Like They started off shooting in the winter, and then they had to reshoot later, like the next summer, like in June. So some of those scenes, they, you know, they had to reshoot because it was hard to pull a lot of that shit off during those times. They said they were in the same latitude. This is give you reference in Montreal where they were at. They said they had the same latitude as Moscow, Russia. So, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind because, you know, Moscow's not known for his warm weather, <laughs> you know. So anyway, long story short, they had difficulty shooting that, and that's why they brought Dick Smith on board because of his work with The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, The Godfather, and this guy's like a home run hitter with mm-hmm. his prosthetic work specifically. Like when you look at the makeup effects on those films, it's him. We've already pointed out the thing this is known most for is a head exploding. And yeah. That, way to go, guys. Everybody uh, involved. Yeah. You've probably, like you said, you mentioned earlier, you've probably seen it through a GIF or just some kind of reference back to this film. But like I said, for me, growing up was definitely the last sequence mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, you know. But yeah, definitely this is one I would recommend if you're interested in seeing a Cronenberg film. Yeah, and I think it's a nice, easy entry, too. We yeah. are eventually going to do <sighs> The Fly, and I find that not as easy easy to get through no it's not you know for a lot of reasons and a lot of his other films for the same reasons like they're kind of hard to take in because they deal a lot more with the physical aspects of body horror like i said it's kind of a thrillery almost like espionage sort of yeah it is and i think too because of the actors and you know for just because of the pacing Oh my god, the computer scenes were hilarious yeah they were i even like some of the dialogue that those guys have too it's like see no fireworks jesus (laughs) you know just shit like that it's some of that stuff is silly now but i mean for 81 dude this movie's great i uh, like i said i hope people go out and watch it that was kind of my thoughts on it i mean i'd rather you just go out and watch it rather than break down every scene those were my big thoughts on it and how it impressed me exactly it's like i said if you want a good 1980s early 1980s film cronenberg ironside cool special effects good score yeah yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really jumped out at me. What's her name? Played Kim Obrist. She was Oh, great. O'Neal? Yeah. yeah. She was great. Oh, here's something, too, interesting. Just real quick. Prior to this film, the most she had on film, seven minutes. Wow. So she said that filming this movie was difficult for her because this is the most she's ever been shot in one movie. So she didn't know a whole lot what to do. So anyway, it just gives credits to a lot of these people because for a lot of them, it was kind of a first time big thing for them. For others, they were kind of already decorated. So it was a a good blend. Mm -hmm. Ruth's breakdown at the very end was kind of weird to me, but whatever. I didn't care at that point. Yeah, his internal dialogue is funny. Yeah. There might be even more that I could glean from that if I paid really close attention yeah. to it. But Somebody pointed out that was kind of neat, too. I know we're kind of going off on tangents, but the use of the lighting in the very first opening sequence in that mall. Like, if you yeah. look up, it kind of does remind you of, like, a casino with all those fucking lights. But they're in a mall food court. And it's funny because I think I've been in one of those things. Like, I mentioned Cinema du Parc. And that's kind of like that, the way it's, it has all those levels to it, yeah. That opening scene, I like how it was kind of neat that there was the implication, 
Well, at the time, he didn't know how to use his powers. He accidentally did that to that chick. Yeah. But there was kind of the implication <laughs> that his powers were doing shit subconsciously all the time, because he just, like, fucking ganks the cigarette. <laughs> yeah, it does. Ganks a couple fries. Got a hot, right off somebody's hot table. Dog. Yeah. Just sits down, like... Got the munchies. And they like, oh, my God, he's trying to pick us up. No. He gave her uh, some spasms. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it was weird, but... <laughs> yeah, it's funny, man. Like, but this... Like so, this film and overall, it's got some. It's got some good moments. It does. Yeah. No. I like I said, fucking go watch this movie. I just don't have much else to say on it right now. No. It's. I'm glad we did this one. Like I said, it's a good entry into Cronenberg. You know, here's something else that's kind of interesting is we don't really have any set plans for next week either. I know we've been kind of winging it now. Yeah. Uh, we thought we had plans, but things changed. Uh, they do. So we are going to go off air and deal with that. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I I kind of like this too. Like I said, isn't new year and we're just kind of winging it right now when we we've definitely got plans but it's kind of fun it's just which ones we can get to first because plans involve other people mostly it does you know we're working on the the finer details but in the meantime in the meantime though to keep with us as we do all that shit you're probably already listening to us on a service we would very much appreciate if you'd subscribe to us on that service give us that like because we like you that would be awesome to follow along more with us i'm trying to use the facebook more i know not as many people use that these days but i mean we're branching out because we're getting to be old men yeah no we uh you know uh, we're, we're still trying to do things instagram so facebook fried squirms instagram fried squirms podcast twitter at fried squirms right. our email squirmcast at gmail.com we would love to hear from you yeah, give us a shout-out. You know, We'll give you a shout-out back. If you're another podcast, we'd love to work with you somehow. Yeah. Like I so said, we're always up for you know collaborating. That'd be really cool, because it seems more and more like there's a really cool horror community out there that we're just kind of lazy. Yeah. But, you know, we do go off, and I do. I do my part, and I listen to others. I don't. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But, no, I, I enjoy it, man. Like I said, it's a good community. I look forward to branching out and... I have been making extra time. I don't really do the New Year's resolutions things that much. This more just happens to correlate with the new year, and I was thinking about it because of all this other shit we've been doing. But I have been trying to work more horror into my daily life. I've been getting caught up on Ash vs. Evil Dead. Oh, yeah, you have. And I moved every horror-related book I have to this bookcase in the recording room. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I left out some questionable entries, but everything that's definitely horror is on there. No, so. that's dope, man. And, you know, I've been Just trying to, to add some extra ambiance to what we're doing. Yeah, get us back in the mood. But, like, likewise, like, I've got some uh, some pretty cool books I need to read, vampire-related, and like I said, just keep delving into some more films, man. I'm really looking forward to see what we do in the future. And also, remember that you can go check out our website, and you have links to all of our shit. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the episodes, stream the latest at the bottom. That's all at friedsquirms.com. Yeah, like I said, in the meantime... God, you can even email us from there. Yeah, fact, exactly. You know what? We actually haven't tried that out yet. We would love it if somebody would go onto our website and use the contact part and see if we actually get anything. Yeah, just give us a test run. Maybe even slip in a movie. Yeah, be like, you guys should watch this. And exactly. we'll be like, we love you. Yeah. Because uh, we do love you. But for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms out. out.